Today on the LA Food Podcast, I'm your host, Lucas Ervodio, and I don't know about you, dear listener, but I think it's beginning to feel a bit like fall. And as the temperatures drop, we've got a boozy episode on tap that'll warm you right up. We're joined today by writer and editor Virali Thave to talk all things Negronis. Virali is a well-versed and passionate consumer of cocktail culture, and the well-loved Italian cocktail has been an obsession of hers as of late. She joins us to talk about the cocktail's origins, how to tell if your bartender's making you a good one, and where to find the five best versions around the City of Angels. We also spend some time talking about her journey as a food writer, from her humble beginnings fact-checking at The Ringer, to her most recent experience writing and editing some pretty awesome pieces for Eater LA. But first, there have been some important developments with respect to legal street vending in Los Angeles. In October, LA City Council member Hugo Soto Martinez introduced a motion that could have some pretty significant ramifications for LA street vendors. We're joined today by Doug Smith of Inclusive Action for the City to break down what it all means coming up next. So without further ado, let's shout out. A few months ago, we were joined on the LA Food Pod by Rudy Espinoza, Executive Director of Inclusive Action for the City, an organization that's been at the heart of the fight for legalizing street vending in Los Angeles. Rudy gave us a fascinating look at the recent history of street vending in LA, and he also walked us through the many challenges that continue to face street vendors on a day-to-day basis. Since that episode, which I will post in the show notes, dear listener, There have been important new developments at City Hall that I felt warranted an update on the situation. So, to that end, we're joined today by an esteemed colleague of Rudy's. It's IAC's Senior Director of Policy and Legal Strategy, Doug Smith. Doug, how are you doing today? I'm great. I'm great. Happy to be here. Thank you for making time for us. Look, one question we ask all of our listeners before we get into the important topics is, what did you have for lunch today? Oh, today I had some leftovers. It was not a very exciting lunch day. Uh, I wish I had known the question was coming. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's kind of the fun of it, you know. Keep you on your toes. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, leftovers are underrated, you know. You know, it's good to reuse and and not waste food. So I commend you that's for right. that. <laughs> so, Doug, uh, would you take a moment just to uh, uh, remind us about what Inclusive Action for the City does and what your role within the organization is? Sure. Yeah. So Inclusive Action, um, we're an economic justice organization, uh, broadly speaking, and we take a a comprehensive approach to advancing economic justice. So we are a lender. Uh, We make loans and we invest in low-income entrepreneurs, a lot of food entrepreneurs who are unable to access capital from mainstream sources. We also try to promote and incubate uh, community ownership models so that we can help small businesses and entrepreneurs build outside of the, the speculative economy. And then um, we, a lot of what I focus on is, is working in coalition with community organizers and, and other community-based organizations to change economic policies. And, and we try to change policies both to open more opportunities in this economy, but also to, to transform economic systems to be more accountable and inclusive uh, and just. And so I spend most of my time working with an awesome team here on policy change. Um, We think about policy, we think about legal strategy, and we work in coalitions to try to achieve these big systems change. And that's how I've worked with street vendors. I've been able to work with uh, street vendors for over a decade in Los Angeles and um, have been part of this this movement for a long time to to try to change those conditions and and build power and and create a, a more equitable food economy in L.A. Totally. Well, speaking of a more equitable food economy, in October, there was some movement with respect to street vendors' rights over at City Hall. Before we get into that, can you give us a quick reminder of where things stood, legally speaking, for street vendors prior to Councilmember Soto Martinez's recent motion? Sure, yeah. And I think um, answering this question might uh, require going back a little bit and and recapping some history. And and some of this you may have covered uh, when you spoke to Rudy back in March, but um, I think, you know, always worth repeating the story a little bit. So uh, a lot of people may not realize, but for over 100 years in Los Angeles, um, up until 2018, street vending was completely illegal in the city. Um, 
And when I would tell people, family members, friends, a lot of people were often surprised because, right? you know, vendors are everywhere. It's ubiquitous. There's, you know, so much part of the, our neighborhoods and our communities. Um, but uh, the, the reality was that the law said that you weren't allowed to be a street vendor anywhere um, and violations were charged as misdemeanors. And this had, you know, really terrible consequences for families all across the region. Um, and so in about... 2010, 2011, uh, a small group of street vendors in, in Boyle Heights started organizing and, and working and bringing together some community-based organizations um, and, and building a coalition that, that would, you know, eventually over the years reach thousands and thousands of vendors across the, the region. And, and the coalition had a pretty simple demand, right? It was legalized street vending. As this coalition is, is doing outreach and engaging vendors in different neighborhoods across the city, we're asking the city council to, to change their policy. Um, and at the time, the, the city council didn't really have the, the political will to make that happen. And so um, fast forward to 2018, the coalition and, and the vendor leaders have, have built enough power and have built this, this following and, and have raised awareness um, so that they had an opportunity to, to go to the state and to partner with um, then state Senator Ricardo Lara to adopt a law called SB 946. And SB 946 is a really important state law. Uh, this is a, a California law that's essentially said to all cities and counties in the state, uh, you're not allowed to ban street vending anymore. You actually need to create a pathway uh, so that vendors can get permits and, and operate legally. And then the law establishes these, these guidelines for what those local regulations can do. And one of the things that the law says um, and that this is really important. It says that, that cities can restrict where vending happens, but that any restrictions must be directly related to objective health, safety, or welfare concerns. Hmm. So that's, you know, legalese. What does that mean? It means that you can't ban vending because you don't like it. You can't ban street vending because you want to uh, protect brick and mortar businesses from competition. You actually have to have a legitimate safety consideration for the restrictions that you put on vending. And mm -hmm. so 2018, the governor signs this law. It's this huge victory. Um, the law goes into effect. And now cities all across the state, including Los Angeles, um, they have to legalize street vending. They have to create local programs. Um, and so LA does that. The city of LA adopts an ordinance and a permit program with various rules. Um, you know, and this is, you know, this is in many ways a huge victory, right? This is what we've been fighting for. Um, but it was not a complete win because in the very last moment, uh, a couple of council members at the time added what are called no vending zones. And so at the very last minute, they amended the ordinance to say there's eight locations across the city where we're just going to say street vending is not allowed. Um, yeah. And you may have seen, you've probably seen the signs around town, right? It's a big block letters that say no vending. And there's a you know, a, a silhouette of a street vendor with a big aggressive line crossing them out. And um, these the zones basically say in this area, you know, Hollywood Boulevard, Walk of Fame, near Staples Center, um, street vending is still completely banned, still, still not allowed. Um, and when they included those no vending zones, um, what the city didn't do was uh, provide that specific health or safety or welfare concern that they were addressing, right? And so it, it, yeah. they just kind of in included these arbitrary bans. What justification did they give at the time for instituting those no vending zones? There's there's nothing in the public record. There there is a um, one or two lines in the preamble to the ordinance. Um, I think suggesting pedestrian safety um, and. But there's no uh, specific analysis around why these particular areas um, have heightened pedestrian safety concerns, what those concerns are. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you talk to street vendors and, and, and the coalition, everyone will acknowledge that, yeah, there are certain areas with unique safety considerations and, and the city should be allowed to regulate um, those safety concerns and should be allowed to, you know, we, we need to be able to do two things at once, right? We need to be able to advance economic inclusion and also protect pedestrian and, and public safety. Um, the problem is what the city has done is instead of doing that careful analysis, they have this blunt instrument tool and they say, no vending is allowed anywhere. Uh, take the Hollywood Boulevard, no vending, yeah. for example. 
They say no vending on Hollywood Boulevard and within 500 feet of the boulevard for this really long stretch. At the same time, they are encouraging sidewalk dining, restaurant sidewalk dining infrastructure. So they're encouraging restaurants to put tables and chairs out on the sidewalk. Now, alfresco sidewalk dining, that's great. You know, that's that could be a really important dimension to the LA food scene. Um, but you can't tell me that for some reason, street vendors posed such a safety concern that you have to ban them from 500 feet of the boulevard, while at the same time encouraging a restaurant to take up more space with the sidewalk dining infrastructure, right? Something doesn't check out there. Right. Um, so there was no no real true analysis or justification. It was just a blunt instrument um, exclusion. And so for a couple of years, the, the vendors in Hollywood and, and other communities um, were, were really solution-oriented. They got together. Uh, they started developing proposals for special vending districts. They came to the city saying, listen, you know, if there are real concerns, we want to be part of the solution. Help us think about a set of rules where we can still vend. Because a lot of the vendors, especially in Hollywood, have been working there for, in some cases, decades, right? And, and they're part of the community. They, li they live in surrounding neighborhoods. So how do we think about a set of policies that where there are actual safety concerns, we can regulate? Um, but without using this blunt instrument of exclusion, and we can still create pockets of opportunities for vendors. Um, those conversations were um, not successful. And so uh, in late last year, um, a, co a coalition, um, a group of street vendors who are working in Hollywood um, and some organizations, including my organization that works with street vendors, um, filed a lawsuit against the city challenging the legality of these no vending zones. And I'm guessing that's where the lack of proper analysis kind of bit them in the ass. Yeah. And it's, and it's, again, it's, I think, um, I, I don't know to what extent there's a perception out there that we're, you know, trying to fight any and all regulations. I think all of the vendors that I've ever talked to, you know, want to build a business. They want to come into a system. They want to get a permit. They want to participate in the formal economy. And they know that that means a set of rules and regulations. No one's asking for a free-for-all. Um, I yeah. think what, what we're asking for is a, you know, a thoughtful, nuanced policy conversation where we can balance these two considerations. Yeah. I mean, I, I, that resonates with me because certainly I've, I've had experiences where, for example, one area where I could see there being value in it being a quote unquote, no vending zone is at the Hollywood Bowl. Do you know that spot where they, like you have to cross the, the really trafficked street and you have to like go in the like mm -hmm. tunnel under the ground, you know? Um, yep. street vendors line up in there to sell, uh, you know, food and t-shirts and whatnot. And part of me thinks maybe that they also do that because they don't feel safe doing so above ground all the time. If that's a no vending zone, I'm not sure if it is, but if it were, I could see them being forced to go underground. I think that creates a legitimate hazard because, you know, you're down there. It's very confined space. It gets really crowded. It's scary with no street vendors there. I think it's also yeah. a safety concern for the street vendor personally. So it would make sense for me to study that situation and see if maybe that's a good no vending zone, right? But yeah. a situ regulations are good. There just has to be reasons where, why, why they're enforced, basically. And I, I think that's what you all have been arguing, and it makes complete yeah. sense. So, so we have this proposal from Council Member Soto Martinez. What is the new motion? Yeah. So, and, and this is, forgive me in advance, this is getting into a little bit of the, the sausage making at, at, at City Council and, and how motions work. But um, so, you know, our, our lawsuit was filed and we have a trial date in um, currently set for February. And so uh, what happens is at City Council, um, when there are lawsuits against the city, the city council will talk about those lawsuits with the city attorney, um, who's, who is, you know, there representing them, um, in something called closed session. And so this means that, um, they have a conversation about these lawsuits, um, without the public being able to, to listen in because it's, uh, protected by attorney client privilege. Um, but we know a couple of weeks ago, they were set to talk about this lawsuit, um, cause it's on the agenda that's posted publicly. And so that same day, a motion was introduced um, that uh, essentially concedes that the, the current ordinance is not legal and, and proposes a process to create a special vending district in Hollywood um, that would, in theory, balance any real safety concerns with uh, opportunities for, for vendors to work safely. 
Hmm. Um, and so it's interesting, right? It's I think we, the coalition, saw this motion and we um, agree with its goals. Um, in many ways, it's kind of what we were proposing the city do uh, four years ago. Um, but at the same time, by itself, the motion, it, it doesn't resolve the legal issues that are at the, the heart of the lawsuit. So um, it doesn't actually eliminate the no vending zones in the city. Uh, it doesn't take them out of the ordinance. Um, and and it's a motion, which means it, yeah. that's a necessary first step to the process. But, um, you know, the council members themselves have admitted it might take a couple of years to work through this process. And so um, it's it's one of those things where we have a, a sort of nuanced take on it in, in that it's it, I think it could be part of how we resolve these issues, but by itself, it's not resolving the legal issues. And so um, we still have those fundamental legal questions about the legality of these zones that are, you know, I think going to be part of the, the resolution of the lawsuit. So it sounds like at its best, it's a first step. It's a first step. Um, and it's, it's, um, I think it's a, again, you know, something that could be part of the mix, but, um, but want to be clear that, that by itself, it's, it's not enough, um, to, to truly resolve the issues. And, and the other thing I think, you know, want to be, um, I think we're paying close attention to making sure that we are opposing or objecting to any effort to use the motion and this two-year process as a pretext to try to delay legal resolution, right? Because mm. we have those other conversations on a different timeline and it's important, you know, vendors continue to get citations, um, rack up fines um, and and otherwise sort of prevented from from operating and building their business. And so, you know, these vendors have waited long enough and tried long enough. We don't we don't have time to wait um, to, to resolve these questions. I see. So there's a little bit of a fear that maybe this could be used as a peace offering from the council that gives gives an inch when really it's not actually enough to appease the major underlying issues. And so you just want to be wary that you're not, you know, settling, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And I think and it's and it's not necessarily um, sort of uh, attributing intent to anyone. I, I think, you know, Council Member Soto Martinez in particular is, I, I think, um, has the best of intentions and, and has repeatedly been a strong supporter and ally of street vendors. Um, so I, I don't mean to imply that, you know, they're trying to pull a fast one. I think, um, it's yeah. just clarifying that, you know, there's a legislative conversation that happens along, you know, this, in connection with this, um, uh, motion, which is an important process and, and, and part of the ultimate sort of resolution, but there's also the legal questions and those also still need to be resolved. And so just making sure that we're having both conversations, um, and not putting, all of our kind of eggs in the in the one basket, so to speak. That makes sense. So to that end, what's next on this front? So the the motion uh, cleared one committee. It was referred to two committees, so it has to go to another committee. Um, I don't think we have a date for that hearing yet. Um, once it goes through that committee, then it goes to this full city council. And then if the full city council approves it, only then can the city departments actually get started um, doing the things that the motion asked them to do. So, so there's a first round of just getting sign off from the city council, then the work starts. Um, the work that is contemplated is is long-term work. And so that's kind of on its its 18-month, two-year um, track. Uh, and then uh, meanwhile, we have a trial date set for February um, in mm-hmm. the lawsuit. And so um, we could we could go to, to trial in February. Um, there's always an opportunity to have a conversation um, about, you know, resolving or settling the lawsuit before the trial date. Um, you know, we remain open to having a, an intentional and thoughtful conversation. Um, but as of right now, those are, those are the two timelines. So trial in February and then the longer term kind of process with the motion. And not to put words in your mouth or anything, but that to me sounds like the better option, like the 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 trial and settling as opposed to just you know waiting for city council motion that is just piecemeal and is just one small part of it could take forever. If I were to choose for you, I'd choose that for you. Unfortunately, it is out of my hands. Listen, last thing I wanted to talk uh, about with you while we have you is 
we recently saw some pretty sad news um, of a street vendor being brutally attacked in Hawthorne. It was a flower vendor, I believe. And, you know, this one received publicity because it was caught on video camera in a pretty, you know, um, remarkable way. I, you know, we talked a little bit about this when Rudy was on, but I wanted to just zero in on it because of this. And I just wanted to know what is being done to protect street vendors, if anything, from from our city leaders. Yeah, yeah, it's really it's really sad. It's really discouraging. And I think um, you know, you mentioned periodically, you know, we'll see reports or things will get caught on camera, and these stories will will get some attention and go viral. And and I think the unfortunate reality is that for every one of these that we hear about, there are so many others that probably happen and go unreported. Um, and so you know, vendors are are at risk and they're vulnerable out there. Um, and I think, um, you know, in a lot of the, in the dialogue, a lot of attention is paid to, you know, what can vendors themselves do to protect themselves. Um, and, and that makes sense, right? I think um, that's important, but I would just, again, come back to th- there's structural dimensions to this as well, right? So at, as long as we have laws on the books that are, you know, in some ways dehumanizing or othering of street vendors, then they're going to continue to be more vulnerable. And so, you know, the, it, it's not unrelated, right? So these systemic legal and policy efforts that we're talking about um, are not just about economic inclusion. They're also about creating a more, um, a system that is is going to be uh, improve safety. Um, you know, we're talking about instead of no vending zones, can we think about special vending districts? Special vending districts can be tailored rules that in some areas are, you know, we're going to turn to this tool because we're concerned about pedestrian safety. And we want to make sure that vending is happening in a way that maintains that safety. You might also think about a special vending district in other areas where it makes sense for vendors to cluster more than they are, right? To have mm-hmm. more eyes on the street, more sort of safety in numbers and numbers and to be together. And so you might think that could be a policy tool that if we were, you know, uh, allowing ourselves to use our creative brains and, and, and think about this um, in, in more thoughtful ways, then we could turn to those types of policy tools to increase safety as well. So um, it's a it's a difficult tricky conversation. There are a number of things that I think we need to be thinking about from ranging from like, you know, the individual actions that you can take as a vendor. But um, I always like to remind people that it's, it's the, the systemic exclusion plays a big role in this lack of safety as well. And so we need to keep our eye on the ball there too. Yeah, it's a great point. Well, Doug, you've been very generous uh, with your time. So thank you. Um, Anything else you'd like our listeners to know? No, just, I think, go out there and show your favorite street vendor some love. Um, it's a great way to get to know our city in a deeper level and, and enjoy delicious food. Absolutely. Well, we're always advocates for that. Well, Doug, thank you for making the time. We'll be by, right back after a quick break uh, with Virali Thave to talk about Negronis. Joining us on the LA Food Podcast today is LA-based writer and editor Virali Thave. Virali, how you doing today? Good. I'm good. Thank you so much for having me on today. Oh, thank you for joining. Where are you calling us from? What are your LA stomping grounds? <laughs> I'm in the Valley. Um, I'm calling from Sherman Oaks. Um, I've been here, I've been in the Valley for about three years now. Um, and uh, I just moved to an, a new spot, which is why there's a little bit of a mess behind me for those who can see. Yeah. I mean, how how dare you call us not from a pristine apartment, you I know. know, but... I'm just kidding, of course. Uh, the Valley, I got to say, uh, we're getting an, an increasing number of guests from the Valley. I think it's just becoming LA's like hot spot to live in. You know, one of my friends was just saying that the other day. Um, we have a, a couple that we're friends with, and they just moved to a new spot three weeks before we did. And my friend's been saying, like, Sherman Oaks is going to be the next hot spot. Like, I'm calling it. Um, and I really feel like I've seen a lot of new places here in the past few months. Um, and even beyond the new places, I feel like the ones that have been here much longer have been getting a lot more love that, that they deserve. So it's been really nice to see. What are your favorite spots to go to in your hood? Um, I love Anajak. Um, I love Civil Coffee and Studio City for Coffee. We go to Boy and the Bear quite a bit as well. Um, El Cocinero has amazing vegan Mexican food. Their birria tacos are very, very good. 
um, there's a spot in uh, Studio City called Rendition Room that I used to live walking distance from. It's like a speakeasy and it's um, attached to a, an Italian restaurant. Very, very good. I love the valley. I feel like I want to stay here forever. I, you know, I used to have such like a prejudice against the valley when I was younger, probably also because I did not drive. So there was, it was yeah. a big barrier to get to the valley. And then when you're there, you know, it's not exactly the most walkable at all times, even though that is a bit of a stereotype. There are certainly walkable pockets, but I had this sort of like prejudice that the valley was somewhere you had to go and make a trek to. And it was kind of a desert. There was maybe a couple good things here and there, but ultimately it was kind of old school, kind of like, you know, not, not new and popping. But now that I have a car and I've spent an, a, a, an increasing number of hours there eating sandwiches or tacos or whatever I'm doing, it's, uh, I gotta say, it feels like LA's onion, but in like a good kind of onion where you just keep on. Layers. Yeah. You just keep on peeling back layers and layers and there's so much cool stuff. And it's, it's probably the best mix of anywhere in LA for my money of cool old school things and cool new school things. Like there's so many like gems that have been there for decades and things that are just open up all over the place. And I think you just summed it up perfectly with, with what you said you love there. Totally. Yeah. I feel like Burbank especially has a lot of those like old school spots that I love. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to Coenga General Store. It's like a sandwich shop. I like I love places like that. And I love being able to just like find new spots like or new to me spots like that um, in the valley. But there's so many newer spots coming up too. And it's it's nice to get that mix and that onion, like you said. Yeah. Are you from LA or did you move here from somewhere else? No, I moved out here from the East Coast. Um, I was born in India, and then my family and I moved to Nigeria, moved back to India, moved to Texas, um, all in very, like, in my uh, early years. And by the time I started even kindergarten, I was in New Jersey, and that's where... New Jersey, that's where uh, sometimes co-host of the pod, Father Saul, is uh, from as well. So, you know, know. good to see that we have some Jersey representation. What's yeah. uh what 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 are some like quintessential Jersey foods that people don't think about? Oh man, okay. I love this question because it's my favorite thing to talk about in the world. Um, New Jersey has some of the best Indian food in the country, and um, I might go so far as to say the world. There's like a a hub of Indian Americans in a town called Edison, New Jersey, or like Isolin, New Jersey. It's like they're they're two towns right next to each other, um, and they have like truly incredible Indian food. And I feel like when most people think about New Jersey cuisine, they're probably not thinking about Indian food or the Indian population there. They might be thinking about like I don't know Italian American food or like really good pizza or whatnot. Um, but it really has incredible Indian food. That's New Jersey. That's really cool. I definitely would not have thought of that. I thought you were going to say like, well, we're actually close to Philly. So actually our cheesesteaks are pretty good, but that's a way more interesting answer. I feel like it's not um, a part of New Jersey that's super well known um, in, in like the general outlook of folks who aren't from there. But I do feel like people who are there like know about Edison, which is, which is good. Edison deserves to be known. Yeah. It's like an, if you know, you know, kind of situation. Yes. It's like daily city for Filipino food if you live in the Bay Area. Like that's that's uh, I was just watching a Padma Lakshmi Taste the Nation on that, and um, I'll, I'll confess I did not know about that before I watched the show. But that's why these kinds of things exist. Now, what brought you to LA from New Jersey? I moved out here for uh, an editorial internship when I was twenty-two. Um, I had graduated school with like a contract job lined up and I was working in New York for a little bit, um, doing nothing related to what interested me or excited me. It was just like a job. Um, and I was 22, so I was happy to have a job. And when that contract ended, I was just like, what do I really want to do? And what I really wanted to do was become a writer. And I applied to an internship that was um, actually in Brooklyn because I did not at all ever think about moving out west. Um, but when I interviewed with, um, the person who became my boss and is still one of my mentors, 
he was like, well, we don't really have an opening in Brooklyn right now. We will in a few months, but there's no guarantee um, of like when that will be, what that would look like. Would you rather be considered for a job in LA now? It is in person um, or a job in Brooklyn down the line. And I was like, I'll move to LA. So I literally bought a car, drove out here um, and I have been here since. What's uh? What was the internship? Where who was it with? What kind of writing? I was an intern at The Ringer, um, which is like sports, pop culture, tech, uh, and I was there for I think six months, nine months. I don't even remember. It was it was a while back. Oh my God! Father Saul is gonna die when he hears this. He's <laughs> like the biggest Bill Simmons fanboy in the world. Uh, how was it? What was that like working at The Ringer? I loved it. I really had such a good team. I had like um, a few other interns in my cohort that were like, I feel like when you're 22 and you're in the workplace, there's a reputation that you might be a little, little obnoxious or like not the most professional. And we fit that reputation. <laughs> we didn't do anything to dispel that notion. Um, we had a lot of fun together. And uh, like I mentioned, my boss was amazing and was like, uh, has is still a mentor to me. And um, it's probably the best boss I've ever had. So when I think about like, what kind of manager do I want to be? I definitely think about that experience. And um, it was just like a great team, a lot of fun. I learned a lot really quickly and was really grateful for it. What kind of uh, subject areas did you cover? Oh, I, I barely covered. <laughs> I was doing very little writing and the writing that I did was very like pop culture related, but most of my job was like interning tasks. So um, um, some fact checking. So I got some fact checking training, which was really nice. A lot of like transcribing um, other writers interviews. Um, it was not the most glorious work, but it, uh, I felt like I was close to the glory and I was just happy for that. It is all the work behind the scenes that is essential, though, for an operation like that. Because, like, you know, I don't get fact checked on this podcast, and if I make a mistake, like, it's it's on me to figure out, right? But I only put out one episode a week. They're putting out thousands, probably, of different pieces of content each week, whether it's an mm -hmm. online piece or a podcast or a video or something. And when you when you have that high volume, the fact checking becomes essential because there's so many more opportunities for a mistake. So, you know, I think, uh, you know, it takes a village and it sounds like you were very much part of that village. How the heck did you find your way into food journalism from there? I, um, it was something that I started thinking about while I was there. And uh, my, my boss, Craig, I had just like messaged him like on Slack, um, asking him if he had any recommendations for things I should read. And he was always and still is very generous with his recommendations. Um, so I started doing some reading of like essays that I really liked or that he uh, recommended or like books and whatnot. And um, from there, I, I have had like eight or nine internships. I've been an intern so many times. So from there, I was an editorial intern at Girlboss. And I was like still thinking about food in the back, but not really like doing much related to it. Um, and from there, I worked at a writing school for a little bit. And um, this woman who also became a mentor worked with me at Girlboss for a little bit. We never really met because we were working different days of the week. Um, but we like knew of each other. And then we worked together at the writing school where she was a teacher and I was like an, an assistant or an admin. I don't even remember my, my title. Um, but I took one of her courses and uh, I had written, I had like mentioned in passing that I like to celebrate my first year in LA, I was going to eat this burrito um, at a spot called 23rd Street Cafe, which is by U USC. They make like, yeah. have you been there before? I went to USC and I literally... I had not thought about this place in ages. I went pretty often when I was at USC, but uh, I thought about it recently because I was looking for awesome places around BMO Stadium to do something for uh, an LAFC game and what to eat at LAFC. And one of the places we heavily considered going back to was 23rd Street Cafe. The only reason we didn't go back is because they don't serve booze and we felt like it was important to get a little buzzed before going to the game. That's fair. That's valid. Um, but that place is really so good. And that, that like, I don't know if you've had their Indian Mexican breakfast burrito. Yeah. Changed my life. The first time I had it, I was like, uh, like it felt like a revelation. And I was just talking about this burrito, um, to like the people I worked with. And she was like, you should write about that. And I was like, okay, like, I don't know how. And she taught me how in her class. And, um, from there she had like 
she and a team of other folks had launched a publication that's no no longer really active uh, called Los Angelino. And when she started the publication, she's like, we'd love to buy that piece. And I like, she is so generous. There's like so many generous uh, editors and writers in the industry who are like happy to give you an opportunity, happy to like show you the ropes. And she's definitely one of those people. Um, and she uh, sort of helped me get my start. And from there, I was like, okay, well, I want to write about this thing that happens to be related to food. And what I really just wanted to write was personal essays. That's what I focused on in college. Um, and, you know, because every 22-year-old wants to share their voice with the world. <laughs> Because when you're when you're that age, or when I was that age, I shouldn't generalize, but when I was that age, you feel like every thought you've had is like the first time anyone's thought it. Yeah. Although, you know, kudos to you for doing it in personal essay form and not just starting a TikTok channel, you know, which I think is how most 22-year-olds these days do it. Yeah. I mean, if TikTok were around back then, I probably would have gone that route too, <laughs> but um, yeah, so it, it was like one piece and then another piece. And then from there, I just, she taught me how to pitch myself and how to sort of start freelancing. And that's how I got my start. That's awesome. So how did you eventually find your way to Eater, which is where you just wrapped up your most recent stint, right? Yes, yes. Um, I had written a piece for LAist about um, Pizza Palace when it first opened and uh, Farley Elliott uh who was my coworker for about six months and who was also the best. Um, he reached out to me and just sort of asked if I'd be interested in writing for them, gave me like the rundown and what that would look like. Um, and he was headed to paternity leave. So I started working with another editor there, Kathy Chaplin, who was also the best. Uh, lots of great people in this field, honestly. <laughs> um, and Kathy and I began working together and I had a full-time job in marketing, um, which is Honestly, most of my internships and most of my work experience has been in marketing uh, only because where I went to school, there weren't a lot of journalism opportunities. So my resume just, you know, it was just easier to get more of the work that I'd been able to get and, you know, just keep building on that. Um, and I was in a marketing role and Kathy has a background in marketing as well. And I was like, how... Like, if we're being honest, this stuff is not fun. Like, I don't know who wakes up every day and is like, marketing is my passion. And <laughs> the people that do, good for them. Like, I wish I wish I had that, that like, bone in my body. But uh, food writing and writing in general is what does that for me. And I was sort of, like, asking her for advice of, like, how did you, uh, like, when one industry is so much more stable, when there's, like, slightly fewer layoffs and uh, a lot better pay and more opportunities, um, how did you find your way into food where, where your passion is? And she was like really honest with me and uh, just sharing like her perspective. And I was asking her like, if, if she had any advice, I'd done some editing in the past. Um, and it's something that I, I really love and enjoy. I love working with like new and more seasoned voices and helping people find, you know, find ways to tell the stories they want to tell and to do it well. Um, and she was like, I'll be honest with you. Like, it's kind of who you know, uh, like to get a job like that, because those jobs are few and far between. And she's like, but it's good for me to know. And a week later, I uh, had an email because a um, few people on the team were leaving for various reasons. And I had an email to do a guest in, um, to be an editor at Eater. And I was like, absolutely, yes. Like, that sounds amazing. <laughs> That's so dope. What was your, this is probably really hard to choose, but what was your favorite story that you got to work on while you were there? Oh, man. Um, well, I think uh, I mentioned this earlier, the rendition room in Studio City is like a really great speakeasy. It's been around for about seven years. But the bartender at that place, he's just an incredible person. Like I, I urge everyone to just go and like, just experience what it's like to be uh, in his in his bar. He um, has been tending bars since he was like 15 years old, I believe. Um, and he's in his mid 60s now. So he's, <laughs> yeah. So he's been doing it for almost 50 years and uh, born and raised in LA and has like served like countless celebrities. And he's just like, he's a true artist. Like hearing him speak about his, like what he does and um, of all like the interviews I've ever done. And I started doing this when I was in eighth grade. Like I love, or honestly, fifth grade, like a school paper. I love interviewing people, I love hearing their stories. His moved me so much. Like he cried three three times during the interview. I cried multiple times during the interview, and like luckily it was just a phone call, um, and not like a video call or in person. Um, 
but he's just like a really special soul and being able to tell his story of like his legacy and what he's built at this like incredible speakeasy in the valley where like we talked about earlier doesn't always get the love it deserves um was like i just was happy to be able to do that and he'd never been interviewed so it was really like it was an honor to be able to talk about him and share his story that's one of the reasons i love doing this podcast is because you get to interview people who don't often get interviewed because yeah. you know people in the food industry yeah they might get interviewed really quickly for a story on their store opening or something like that. But for most of these people, it's their first time sitting down and doing like an in-depth conversation on their life. Mm -hmm. It does it's it does not surprise me to hear that he cried. I mean, it does a little bit just because he's like a 60-year-old bartender, you know, it's like you you kind of have a different perception of what they're supposed to be like. But For a lot of folks, when they're having these conversations, it's the it's kind of like their therapy. It's like the first time that they're looking back on their life yeah. and trying to put it together as a story. Um, and it, you get some really special moments, I find. Totally, totally. I feel like it's a privilege to like make someone feel heard that way and to give them that space to talk about things and like um, stuff that they've never really been able to talk about in, in a way that you might create for them. Uh, I always love asking people towards the end after I've like created some sort of like intimacy where we we get to know each other. And I hope that I've like established enough trust to know that like their story is safe with me. At the end, I like to ask, what are you most proud of? And like, that's usually when the tears start to come in if they haven't already. And I, I just really love hearing that. That's a great, great question to ask. I mean, it is, uh, you know, even just thinking about that question, I think. It, it brings up a level of self-reflection that is uncommon, I think, in a lot of people's daily lives, especially when you're running a business or working in such a fast-paced industry like the food one, where it's kind of like, go, 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 maximize efficiency for the next move. You don't get to really slow down and, and think about something like that. So it's really cool that you get to have those conversations. Um, listen, speaking of bars, we're here today to talk about a subject that is near and dear to your heart, as I understand it, and that is the Negroni. I got to ask, where does your passion for this cocktail come from? Totally. I, I love cocktails. I love cocktail culture. Uh, when I interviewed Scott, the, the bartender at Rendition Room, he was also talking about how in all his years behind the bar, we're like entering like the best time to drink, where there's just such an attention to um, like the cuisine of cocktails, the uh, the level of detail, the preparation, like people are drinking really complex drinks right now in a way that um, more than they ever have been able to before. Um, so I love cocktails in general. The Negroni, I, I don't remember the first time I had a Negroni, but um, my partner's brother and his wife and their baby live in Italy. And they just moved there about a year ago. And uh, so we've started doing everything Thanksgiving will do in uh, Europe. Last year, we were in uh, Tuscany. This year, we're going to France. And uh, when we were in Tuscany, we took like a day trip from, we were staying in Cortona, which is where they filmed uh, Under the Tuscan Sun. I know you're very familiar. Um, I, it's so weird. Cortona, I don't know if I mentioned this to you, but I went on like a weird fifth grade trip there of all places. Oh, like, Wow. Yeah, like I grew I growing up in Switzerland, our uh school would take us on these like uh school trips to random little towns where I guess they could find good deals at like uh bread and bre- bed and breakfasts and they just happened to find this one in Cortona, Italy while we were studying the Renaissance. So, we just went there and like went to a couple old churches, went hiking and like, you know, I had my first school dance in Cortona of all places. Yeah. Um so, you know, near special place in my heart. I love it. I love it. What did you think of it? I remember extremely little other than that school dance. Um, I remember it being absolutely beautiful in terms of like uh, kind of a mix between old medieval style village and uh, a lot of natural beauty around too, because there's, it's like countryside around if I'm not mistaken. Right. So um, it's kind of like one of those really quintessential Tuscan postcards that you envision when you when you think about Tuscany. Totally, yeah. It's so it's so beautiful, and it's so close to so many other you know gorgeous parts of Italy. Um, and 
we were doing a, a day trip to Florence and I'd been before um, and I loved it, but I wasn't like, I wasn't thinking anything of it. I was like still working the whole time I was there. It was like Italy wise, a great trip, like lifestyle wise. I was like in a really bad place, very stressful job. And um, we went for like an early lunch and we got Negronis and I was like, okay, you know, trip turned around right here. Like I feel instantly <laughs> better. This this cocktail is amazing. It's so well balanced. It's so like simple. The fact that there's only like really three ingredients. Um, and I drank them more. We went to Rome um, a few days later. I drank one in Rome as well. And like, there's a lot of like variations that I we tried while we were out there as well. And when we came back, I was like, I want to start making my own. So I began making my own at home. And now um, I, I dine out quite a bit, especially when I was at Eater. There would be times where I'd be like eating out six days a week, sometimes multiple times a day. And usually when I'm, I love like any spot that has a good, you know, cocktail program. When I try like the drink menu or when I look at the drink menu, I usually want to start with something that's like unique that I have that I might not see somewhere else. And then I kind of always want to end with a Negroni. Or if I'm only having one, like if I'm, I can only get one drink, I want to get a Negroni. So I've been trying a lot of Negronis. Is the thinking there kind of like what, okay, I'm not, I'm in no way comparing you to Dave Portnoy because Dave Portnoy sucks. But when he goes and tries a pizza, he does the cheese pizza everywhere to sort of get like a standard product so he can like compare them one to one. And because, you know, if you can nail the cheese pizza, chances are you can nail other stuff as well. Is that your thinking with getting a Negroni at each place too? You're kind of like, if they can show me they can do this cocktail well and balance these flavors, that tells me something about the bar program. Yeah, I'll be honest. I'm not being analytical about it. I kind of <laughs> just want to have a good Negroni. <laughs> um, and I also think like some places will do things really, really well and their Negroni might not be it. And it doesn't necessarily say that like their bar program isn't it. Um, if they're like the one thing they're trying to do is a good Negroni and they can't do a good Negroni, that's like a different conversation. But I think a lot of like a lot of bars have incredibly talented creative bartenders that are like doing all these cool tricks and using all these interesting ingredients and like flavors and combining them together. Um but I, if I can find like a really great Negroni that like makes my day, like that's kind of all I want. So Negronis are insanely popular right now. We've seen so many like Italian style cocktail bars uh, open up recently. Last week on the podcast, we had the author of the upcoming uh, Italy cocktails book, Paul Feinstein, and he told us about some of his fa favorite places to get an Italian cocktail. But despite the popularity of the Negroni, I don't actually know very much about it other than, you know, what it tastes like. What can you tell us about where the Negroni came from, its history? There's uh, a few conflicting origin stories about where the Negroni came from, but they're all kind of along the same vein. Um, there's two versions that I've found. One is folks who say that it's from the early 20th century from Florence in a spot called, uh, I'm, my Italian pronunciation is very bad, so please don't judge me, but it's I got Cafe, <laughs> Cafe Cassoni. Um, and it's, they say that a member, thank you, a member you did great. of you did great. the, I appreciate it. Uh, a member of the Negroni family asked for a version of the Americano cocktail um, where they just wanted to substitute gin instead of water. Um, another version credits a man named, uh, again, excuse my pronunciation, uh, pa General Pascal Olivier de Negroni, who is the Count of Count de Negroni. Um, they say he invented the drink in Senegal in either the late 19th century or the early 20th, 20th century. Um, either way, they're sort of crediting the Negroni family, um, which is why a lot of places will consider the Negroni a proper noun that gets capitalized instead of just like a cocktail, like a margarita or something. Yeah, I've seen that. I'm sorry. Did you say Senegal? Yeah. I, I was like, that's not that's not Italy. That's not what I was expecting. No, it is. It is not. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know why or where or or I don't know why or how, but. Yeah, that's that's what Wikipedia tells me. <laughs> <laughs> so what what are the ingredients of your classic Negroni? It is gin, uh, sweet red vermouth, and Campari. And it's generally uh, stirred rather than shaken, so you're getting like a really good mouthfeel. Um, and then there's an orange peel garnish. So I, I am a cocktail-like uh, 
novice. I don't know anything about this. If I am going out to try a Negroni, what am I looking for in order to be able to distinguish a good one from a not so good one? Yeah, I think if they're shaking it, that's your first red flag. Um, if it's a, if it's like a traditional Negroni and they're shaking it, like there's no reason you should be shaking a Negroni and you're kind of ruining the feel and the texture of it. Um, a good Negroni is one that's not too bitter or sweet. Um, and I keep talking about texture because I think that's like the most important telltale sign of a well-made Negroni. Um, if it's like sort of overly diluted, that'll change the flavor, but it also will change like the drinking experience of it. Uh, or when it's like really properly made, it has like a really smooth mouthfeel. I have never once thought about the texture of a cocktail. I think... If you had asked me about the texture of a cocktail, I would have just said liquid, uh, which shows you what <laughs> I know. But like that makes so much sense to me. I can now think of times when I've had more like watered down, watery yeah. sort of like versions versus ones that have that sort of like smooth, velvety mouthfeel as you were as you were describing. Okay, look, million dollar question here is where the heck are the best Negronis in Los Angeles? I, I understand you have five to share with our listeners. I do. I do. Um, I, this is in no particular order, although I do have my favorites. Um, Margo in Culver City, rooftop bar, restaurant, makes great Negronis. Really? I did not. I, I don't know why I didn't expect that. I just feel like Margo is a, is a place I go for vibes um, and setting, yeah. not necessarily for like quality of, of things. Um, yeah. But that that makes sense. And what a beautiful setting to have a Negroni. I know, totally. I also, it's it's one of those places that I went to and ordered something else first. And then I was like, you know what? I look, Let's be honest. I just kind of want a Negroni and I got it. And it, it was like a really delicious Negroni. And I also was under the impression that like, is this the place, the kind of place that like really just cares about having a good vibe and uh, can confirm that it does not vibe and vibe alone. Is it a traditional one or do they have a twist on it? Yeah, I think I tried the traditional and the uh, the white Negroni, um, and I preferred the traditional. What do we mean when we say white Negroni? So instead of using sweet vermouth, people, it'll usually, there's like different variations. Uh, usually they're using, I, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it well or properly. Uh, it's like Suze, like S-U-Z-E. Mm. So uh, let me, you know what, let's, let's Google it. Let's fact check it. Uh, Going back to your ringer days. Let's fact check it. Yeah. Uh, it's aromatic. It's complex. It's bitter, earthy, slightly floral. It is a uh, aperitif, um, and it's French. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, the French always get involved at some point in what Italians do. Okay. So Margot, number one. I mm -hmm. like it. What's spot number mm -hmm. two? Uh, spot number two is Grandmaster Recorders. I. I love this place so much for so many reasons. Like the hospitality there, it, I always feel so welcome when I'm there. Uh, the food's incredible, but their drinks are like really, really great. And they have, um, I think this this might be true of multiple properties uh, of this hospitality group. But from what I remember, they have a drink at, uh, or a Negroni on tap at every floor. Um, so they have a, like a white Negroni and a traditional Negroni. And both of them are like very, very good. Some of the best I've had in the city by far. I'm sorry. I missed the name of the place. Oh, Grandmaster Recorders. It's in Hollywood. Oh, oh I love that place too. Grandmaster Recorders. Yeah. yeah it's, it's another place where I would be like, this is vibes. What, what, but but yeah. good to know they have quality. <laughs> the other thing that surprises me is the, the on tap thing. I, I would have thought that getting an on tap Negroni would or a cocktail of any kind frankly would diminish yeah. its quality right off the bat are you telling me that's not the case it's not and i don't honestly don't know how they do it um and like earlier when i was talking about how a good negroni is stirred not shaken um in order to get the texture right and in order to get like the dilution from the ice as you prepare the drink correct you don't want to put a lot of air into it um shaking something helps you put a lot of air into it or sort of combine uh like non-liquid elements so if there's like an egg white for example or non-watery elements i should say um an egg white like you'll shake an egg white cocktail because you really want the egg white to get foamy and you want to get the air in it and you want to combine it with the other elements 
elements properly. Um, and a groni, you don't want to do that. You just want the like the three ingredients to shine. Um, and I would think that when you're like putting something on tap, you're allowing a little bit of air into it, but maybe it's it's minimal. I'm I'm not a big science person, so I can't speak to the science behind that, but I can confirm it tastes good. Yeah, I mean, I, I if it's anything like a keg, I think it's designed to keep the air out, right? Like you could serve beer, and so, yeah. that, so maybe that That's does true. work. Maybe it does. I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? We'll have to get a keg scientist yeah. in here one day, and that will be a very mm-hmm. riveting episode of the podcast, I'm sure. Um, okay, we got Margot Grandmaster Recorders. What's spot number three, or what's Negroni number three? I should say. Well, uh, Grandmaster Recorders had the two: the white oh, Negroni the both and the. It's the both of them because they they really are that good. Um, wow. Number okay. Four, um, best bet in uh, a Culver City area. Very delicious. It might not be exact Culver City. It might be like neighboring neighboring area, but very very good. Their Negroni is incredible. Uh, it's a traditional Negroni. It's it's a good one. <laughs> I'm going on uh, Monday for the first time. Actually, I'm, I'm I'll know to get it. Um, so this is another traditional Negroni. I'm getting the sense that you're a traditional yes. Negroni kind of person. I really am, and generally, when I have variations, I don't like them. Like the the wildest variation I'll go to is like the white Negroni, um, and the spot number five is also a variation. But usually, if there's like, I never want a mezcal Negroni. I really don't like it. A lot of people like it. I'm happy for them. I am not that person. I feel like the gin and the vermouth and the Campari, like, I mess with it. I am a mezcal Negroni person. I I will uh, <laughs> admit, ashamedly, in fact. Uh, no shame. My wife and I, well, you know, a li- little bit of shame. My wife and I both had like quote unquote signature cocktails, you know, at our wedding, and uh, mine was a variation on a mezcal Negroni. So um, that's how oh, much. Amazing. I, yeah, I I also like just thought it sounded cool, so there was an element of that. Um, but yeah, I uh, I I will now start taking more Negronis with gin just to really appreciate the uh the history and the the true experience but i have been known to sip on a mezcal negroni okay we've got grandmaster recorders with two two negronis both the regular and mm-hmm. the white negroni we've got mm-hmm. best bet with a classic negroni and we've got of course margo what's the fifth what's the fifth fifth best negroni in in los angeles in no particular order um bar bar in downtown la uh, they opened this year. They have a Negroni. All their cocktails are named after uh, like really uh, well-known Bollywood movies. So this one is named after. I actually used to have the menu with me right here. I like. I love it so much. I like got one to take home because you can buy them as well. Um, they have the drink is called the Anarchy, which is a movie from I believe the fifties. We'll fact check that one later. Um, <laughs> it's a Bollywood movie. I think it's in black and white. I haven't seen it heard great things. The cocktail is just a variation on, on the Negroni in that it adds Darjeeling tea to it. I love Darjeeling tea. It's like one of my favorite teas. Um, and I obviously, as we know, love Negronis. And I was like very curious and hopeful about this one and like trying to manage my expectations when I saw it on the menu. And I was like, it exceeded all expectations. Like one of the best cocktails I've had. Very, very good drink. Wow, what a what about it? Do you think like because it sounds like you're a bit of a purist. You don't like the smoke of the mezcal in there to get in your way. So, what do you think worked about this yeah. one? I think that the tea, when I've had it, is not overly steeped, so it doesn't have like um, I don't know like the right words to talk about tea, but it, it doesn't have like that tannic taste that like overly steeped tea can have sometimes. And I mm-hmm. think it just like plays well with the ingredients that are there, um, and it's just like a properly made drink um i think that it's it's really easy to mess up a negroni i make them quite often and i i tend to mess them up quite a bit too i I enjoy the practice i enjoy the process sort of like brewing like a really good cup of coffee you can be drinking coffee for like 20 years but sometimes you'll make a bad cup and like you just try again and you still get to have that ritual of making like a good cup of coffee um but for these flavors i think like the fact that it's a properly made drink and the fact that like they just happen to go well together i don't I, I don't question it. It's just so good. And I will say, if you're sensitive to caffeine, if you have to at dinner, be prepared to not sleep until 3.30. Ooh, yep. That's uh, yeah. that's going to be me. I But I like it because I enjoy a drink that it gives me that pep in my step. Um, 
like for example, I love uh, a carajillo, sort of like the Mexican version mm-hmm. of the espresso martini, right? Uh, my problem with it is, you know, you got it. You can't have it with the meal. You got to wait for after the meal, otherwise it'll blow your palate out and influence everything else that you're tasting. Um, so, but you know, maybe with this drink, it, you might be able to even sip on it while you eat some food. I don't know. Do you, do you think it's more of a during dinner or after dinner cocktail? Um, so traditionally, and I didn't, I didn't know this until I was doing some prep work to talk about this. I know that folks, I learned that folks will generally drink Negronis before dinner as like a bit of an aperitif. I'm, I think there's no bad time to have a Negroni and I don't think there's a bad time to have this specific one either. Um, but I, after having that experience of having two with dinner one time, I will going forward be only having them for lunch, not for, <laughs> not with my dinner. Good to know. Good to know. Okay. Okay, folks, you've heard it here. The five best Negronis in Los Angeles, according to a true aficionado, we will put the list in the show notes. I do want to ask before we let you go though, what is the trick have in your experience to making a good one at home? Yeah. So a lot of like the traditional recipe is like a one to one to one ratio. So uh, equal parts, gin, Campari and sweet vermouth, uh, death and co, which is one of my favorite bars. Um, I love their downtown outposts. They're, they're in Denver, they're in DC, they're in New York. Um, their cocktail book advises you to put a little bit extra gin. Um, and I've tried both and I honestly find that even more than the ratios where I really mess up is, uh, ice so like using the right quantity of ice using the right ice size to sort of prepare the drink um i also always like to prepare it separately from like the glass i'm drinking in itself like i don't i don't like to make the negroni in the glass and sort of use that same ice Um, i like to pour it over like um, a single ice cube rather than tiny ones so those are those are my ways to do it and even though i am a little bit of a purist i really like adding mole bitters or adding chocolate bitters to my negroni Okay, you just you just really turned everything on its head. Mole bitters does not sound it's traditional subtle. at all. It's not, but it's really subtle. And uh, if you ask for it, doesn't already make it, they'll be very impressed by you. So one, I recommend, and two, um, there's a drink at Death and Co that ugh, I don't. It's gonna kill me. I don't remember the name of it. But there's it has mole bitters in it, which I like. I know that's not enough information, but it's like probably the best cocktail. Again, I know I already said this about Bar Bar's Negroni, but this one is definitely the best cocktail I've had in my entire life, like by far. And I love, 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 love bars. Um, and it has mole bitters, and I, I just wanted to try it with my favorite drink, and it's you can't miss. I'm constantly striving to impress my bartender, so uh, I will definitely ask for mole bitters next time. Thanks for the yes. tip. That's but one of the one of the more useful tips you've given me this podcast personally. So thank you. Happy to help, um, <laughs> Raleigh, where, where Before I let you go, and I know I already said that, but actually, before I let you go, where are you enjoying eating these days? Just to leave our listeners with some helpful recommendations on where to go eat. Totally. Um, I went to Poltergeist for the first time recently. It took me way too long to get there. I love it. Blew my mind. And it's another one of those things where like, I feel like sometimes if you eat out so much, you can kind of get jaded and it's, it's, you're never going to feel jaded there. At least I don't feel jaded. I felt very impressed by everything they were doing there. Um, another restaurant that it sh- I should have gone to a million years ago, but didn't get to going to, it, it didn't get around to going to until recently. Um, Rusty Canyon. I went for the first time and had only heard amazing things and like they had uh, a gnocchi with cheese sauce that I think the LA Times just wrote about this week. Blew my mind. Blew my mm. mind. Um, at the risk of being too long-winded. Uh, in 2020, I had appendicitis. And I couldn't eat or drink anything before the surgery. Like they wouldn't let me even drink water. The most I got was ice chips. But really, like they didn't want to say yes to that either, which is fair. They're the experts. Um, <laughs> which is just to say... <laughs> By the time I could eat or drink something, it had been maybe like a couple days, like maybe two days, maybe three days. And um, the first thing they gave me was vegetable broth. And like I told this to um, a friend at dinner at Rusty Canyon and uh, she kind of like was like, oh, man, like that's all they gave you. And I was like, no, 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 you don't understand. This broth was the best broth I've had in my entire life because when you don't, when your like tongue doesn't have flavor for so long and you experience like something that may be simple, you taste it so much. And this cheese sauce was like, like drinking that broth. It was just like, I experienced that, so much. 
that is a beautiful and so specific, but yet so beautiful comparison of uh, distillation of what the broth yeah. must taste like and what the cheese sauce must taste like. So yeah. it's clear to me that you are a very good writer. Oh, thank you. And I just really love cheese. Yeah. That is awesome. Okay, those are two great recs. Also, I love those recs because one, we are pretty much uh, at this podcast, we're like the free marketing arm for Poltergeist. We've literally saying their praises so many times. So I love that. Secondly, uh, Rustic Canyon. I love that shout because one of my biggest pet peeves is when uh, LA food media or just food media in general always goes back or always only focuses on sort of the hypey new places. The new places, yeah. Really commend uh, you, but also commend the LA Times uh, for sort of digging back into the Rustic Canyon well. You know, just because the restaurant has been around for eight or nine years doesn't mean it's no longer good, right? So um, I love those answers. Great answers. Great answers. Okay, Raleigh. Well, I will let you go. I've kept uh, you about uh, 12 minutes longer than I promised, but I really appreciate you. And I think you've given our listeners some dope recommendations on Negronis, gnocchi, and so many other things. So thank you for joining us. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. It was, uh, it was so much fun being able to talk about these things with you and I hope that people get to try these Negronis. Hell yeah, and we'll have to we'll have to have you back sometime to to, to tell us about your Indian food recommendations because I know you have a lot of those. Definitely. Anytime. Thanks for listening to another episode of the LA Food Podcast. Thanks to our guests, Virali and Doug, for joining us today. I don't know about you, but I'm thirsty for a Negroni, and I am so stoked that it is Friday. If you like what you heard today, please go to wherever you listen to podcasts, leave us a rating, a review, subscribe. Seriously, I would be forever grateful if you took a moment to leave us one of those things. It turns out they really help us make our way up the charts. So thank you in advance. We'll be back next week with another epic episode, but in the meantime, if you're looking for me, you can find me on TikTok, 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 Instagram, and Threads at the LA Countdown. That's T H E L A C O U N T D O W N. You can also find me on Instagram at LA Food Pod. That's L A F O O D P O D.